0: Thank you all for ministering to us and being with us tonight as well. Let's pray. Father, in your faithful love, would you dig out our ears and give us the ears of disciples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Joining Jesus household. As we're summarizing some of Jesus' parables, uh, we've been spending a lot of time in Matthew 13, which is foundational uh, to understanding them. And if you were with us way back in the fall when we studied in Genesis about God's providence, we talked a little bit about households uh, and looking at some of the patriarchs and Reminding ourselves that Abraham was head of a household, and one of the awkward things about that, that he was head of a household who had no children, and yet he had a household, and it included Lot's household, and it included a lot of people. I bring that up just to remind you that God's concept, uh, many cultures' concept of household is a lot bigger than ours uh, in the West and in the United States. And we've already touched on it in some of the passages that have been read and sung already this morning. Uh, The household of God is a whole lot bigger than our household, and I'm really glad. We ought to be thankful for the individual households that we grow up in, but some of us have been blessed uh, with experiencing the multi-generational households and the struggles that come with that, but some of the blessings that come with that, with uh, knowing that many people are a part of you and you are a part of them. And one of the things that drives the loneliness in our culture is we've been driven to an individualism that is so giant uh, that we're being forced, whether we know it or not, to define who we are all by ourselves, to create our own identities to define our own rights and wrongs. And so many people are just floundering in depression under the pressure. It's no wonder that we see the results that we see. And as sad as it is, and there's no way to talk about the sadness enough of what happens in a situation like in Buffalo yesterday, but do you notice how seldom the conversation turns to what is community and what are our identities that unite us and what are the values that unite us. We start talking about behaviors as if we can modify behavior and everything will be fine. The Scripture points in very different directions and says we definitely need to know our roots and that the arrow, the shaft of Scripture, points towards a new household. And the parables talk a lot about it. We'll be reading some sections of Matthew and a couple of other places as we go along. First, I want you to think about the light of the kingdom. We've looked at the parable of the sower, which Jesus interprets uh, as sowing the word of the kingdom in Matthew 13, 3-8 and 18 233, we've read it a couple of times, but I want to note uh, today that that parable of the sower, the word of the kingdom, precedes both in Mark and in Luke, Jesus' word that lamps aren't lit to be hidden, and in Matthew, while that passage doesn't follow right after the parable of the sower, uh, it comes way before in Matthew chapter 5, and uh, If Steve Weedmuller were here, he would tell you, if I asked him, what is in Matthew 5 through 7, uh, he would say, it's the Sermon on the Mount, because that may be a question that will be on his exam. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 14, Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light To all in the house. Uh, Street lights weren't part of the culture in those days. So when you thought about lighting uh, lighting a lamp, you thought about lighting it in the house. And it wasn't just for one person in the house, it lit the room, and because often the rooms were connected, it lit the house. That's just the common sense thing Jesus is describing. But he goes on and says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. So the light of the kingdom that he's talking about isn't just for your local household, it's for a bigger household, and it's for others outside too. So thus the subtitle, The Light in the House Shines Outside Too. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Uh, if you read along a lot in First Peter as we walked through it in the past few months, uh, Uh, that idea of our works being for others. And even when we're treated badly for doing good, uh, what it does in witnessing to the hope that is ours in Christ is at the heart of Peter's teaching. And I would have you think back. We've talked both about uh, the sower, the word of the kingdom parable, and the good seeds and the weeds parable. We'll read the second one again in a little bit that are both in Matthew 13. I want you to think just about the similarities between those two parables. There are several, three are on the outline that uh, you can glance at with me. Number one, the evil one, or an enemy in the second parable, seeks to hinder God's seed. And Jesus, in telling the parable, doesn't make a big deal about it. He just says, uh, you know, the birds are uh, the enemy who comes to steal away uh, the seed uh, or an enemy comes at night and uh, when the good seed has been planted and plants weeds along with it uh, he doesn't give excuses he doesn't make explanation he just says that's what happened two false growth for a time seeks seems to be the real thing and three the seed that multiplies the word of the kingdom the word that is the word of the father in men and women and the seed that is the sons of the kingdom really shines forth over time. Both of those parables uh, look at the long haul. They look at what happens as the kingdom develops, and several of the other parables we'll look at this morning are similar. Secondly, and don't get too hopeful, not all the points are that short. Those who have ears to hear are from kingdom seed. They are sons and daughters of Jesus' new household. We'll look briefly at John 10. They are the sheep who know the master shepherd's voice. When they hear his voice, they know it's his, and they're attracted. They're drawn to it. They know its value. I'm going to read from Matthew 13. 31 through 46. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. It becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. Till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers. And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. The grain of mustard seed uh, and some botanist plant type people might argue there are smaller seeds. Uh, Jesus isn't writing a textbook here. Uh, If you had ever held a mustard seed in your hand next to a mustard tree in Israel, you would go like, wow. I mean, if that seed fell on the ground, uh, it would be a lot harder than finding your contact lens, even if a whole bunch of you were looking. And the mustard trees grow big enough. They're not giant, but they grow big enough for birds to actually put nests in them. So the grain of mustard seed and the leaven hid in three measures of flour are a reverse twist on the sower and the weeds. The initial hiddenness of the mustard seed and of the leaven that touches every molecule simply show the unexpected power of kingdom and seed and light. Uh, We read Psalm 78 this morning. Thank you, Stephen. You were way ahead of me. Uh, that which was parabolic, that one idea laid alongside another, is there even in the Older Testament and in the Psalms. And that which was hidden was made known. And after we know it, we're supposed to teach our children and help them distinguish between what the world lays alongside things and what the Lord lays alongside for us to understand. The Levin uh, parable is really interesting. Robert Capon writes, Uh, This is no slip of a girl making two tiny loaves of bread for her husband's pleasure. This is a baker, folks. Three measures is a bushel of flour, for crying out loud. That's 128 cups. That's 16 five-pound bags. And when you get done putting in the 42 or so cups of water you need to make it come together, you've got a little over 101 pounds of dough on your hands. This is not someone tiny in the kitchen that doesn't work hard. This is a big deal. And Jesus' listeners no. And I love what Capon says a paragraph or two later. He says, and it's not some hyper good for you chuck of spiritual fad bread full of soy flour, wheat germ, and pure thoughts. It's just plain unbaked bread dough, and Jesus postulates enough of it to make it even handle like the plain old world it represents, that is, not easily. Indigestible it is in its present form, incapable of going anywhere, either to heaven or hell, except in a handbasket. I love the humor of that. You might put it in a giant basket and be able to carry it. And certainly, able to wear out anybody, God included, who tries to deal with it. It is, if we dare rate such things, one of Jesus' parabolic triumphs, a perfect 100 plus if there ever was one. You know, what he's saying is that when the leaven gets in the flour mixed with the water, uh, there's never a time when the dough doesn't have the leaven throughout it. You can't separate it. It's not like finding the seeds separate. It's It's like it's in every molecule of what is formed. And it's an image that the word of the kingdom, which didn't start with Jesus, though it comes to a new fullness and its ultimate in Jesus, uh, has always been in the world. It's not as if the kingdom wasn't and then all of a sudden it became. No, it came in a new and ultimate way in Jesus. But the parables point to the fact that God's presence in different ways has been present. But what Jesus is doing is forming a new household, what we read already in Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. And Peter talks about it as well. You can look it up later in 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 and 4.17. What about this new household? Uh, I love this passage, uh, Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher. Jesus says, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus, the master of the house, the master of the new household, is being called by the scribes And Pharisees, Beelzebul, which is an interesting word. It's a transliteration of the Hebrew or Aramaic name for the prince of demons. And in the Old Testament, uh, it's intentionally distorted uh, from that form to Baal, B-A-A-L, the god of the Canaanites, Zebul which can be translated not Lord of the Demons, but Lord of the Flies, which are both what the Lord can swat around easily. And as we were talking about this in staff meeting, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but one of our staff had read William Golding's Lord of the Flies novel in junior high. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. Uh, Old books, what was it, C.S. Lewis said, read two old books for every one new one. It'll help you keep your balance. Because we think new books are wise. Uh Uh-uh, we don't know that yet. And the Lord of the Flies is about a group of boys on a flight over the Pacific, and the plane crashes, and all the adults are killed, and the boys are on the island. And the beauty of human nature just shines as they develop their community, doesn't it? (laughs) I'm glad you're getting me to know me well enough by now that my sarcasm is readily understandable. The movie is dark. The book, in some ways, is even darker. But if they call Jesus that, they're going to call us that too, because he's the head of the household. And if they treat him that way, then if you want to be part of Jesus' household, you're going to get some of what he gets. The Jewish people, just like the church, haven't always behaved in accordance with everything in their scripture. But a lot of what's happened to the Jewish people over the centuries is simply because they dared claim that there is a God who made everything, who's separate from His creation, and that He tells us what to do. And the world doesn't like it. The world wants to make up their own rules. But those who hear and see what Jesus says and does They will spend everything to be in his new household, to have a part in God's new treasure and inheritance. Uh, Don't over-spiritualize the earthly and earthy simplicity that points to the rich meaning of the parable uh, of the treasure. People did not have safe deposit boxes in 401Ks in New Testament Israel, and you often took your valuables and buried them somewhere on your land. And as would often happen, unexpected deaths came and property transferred to the next generation or someone managed to get the deed of it and they didn't even know where it was. And perhaps they hired someone to mow their lawn, if I can use that analogy, uh, to work part of their field. And uh, that person uh, finds something on the property and some of the law said that if they found it and it Hadn't belonged directly to the owner, they could take it, finders, keepers. Uh, But uh, Jesus is saying the person is a lot wiser than that, and he's not very wealthy, but he takes everything that he has in the world and he goes down and manages to purchase the property, and then he gets the treasure that's in it. He's thinking ahead. And you can hear Jesus' words ringing almost from one of the other parables we may look at later in Luke that. uh, If the people of the world are that wise with that which is valuable, what do you who've been raised perhaps as sons and daughters of the kingdom do with the things of the kingdom? Do you work that hard to keep the things that are the pearl of great price, the treasure in the field before you and the forefront of your mind and and your heart and, and your actions? What are you seeking Will you know the best, the real, when you find it? I was reading uh, this week that uh, the Wilberforce Forum's uh, meeting was in Orlando. I thought about going, but uh, decided not to. And it was 10 years ago this week that Chuck Colson gave his last talk and collapsed on the platform and, and died a few days later. If you don't know who Chuck Colson is... Uh, First person in his family in Boston to graduate from college, uh, did very, very well. Uh, Worked uh, as one of the youngest aides of a US Senator and I think went to Yale Law School at night and uh, graduated with honors. Everything he ever did, uh, he succeeded. Uh, uh, As a very young attorney, he was Richard Nixon's uh, senior counsel sitting at the table with Henry Kissinger and uh, 10 or 11 others. And he was the only one of Nixon's crew that went to jail because he took the hit for Nixon. And and he was an amazing guy. I I need to be careful here. I know too many stories about him, but let me get to the reason I bring him up. Uh, I had a chance in Boston to get to know Tom Phillips just the tiniest bit, and his son was in a training class I taught. Uh, Tom was, uh, for many years, the CEO of Raytheon Corporation, the biggest corporation in Massachusetts, some of you have heard of it, and um, became a Christian. And he knew Chuck. In fact, Chuck had worked as an attorney for Raytheon, and when uh, everything began to come apart, he uh, had Chuck in his office, and, uh, and Chuck tells the story that Tom seemed so different And he started asking questions about what was it. And uh, I didn't know this part of the story until I read this week that uh, he said, uh, Colson took a deep breath and looked at the clock, not keeping track of the time, but he he didn't know how to look Chuck in the eyes when he said, uh, I've become a disciple of Jesus Christ. I've come to know who he is and I've given my whole life to him. And I'd love to tell you about it. And it was the first time Tom Phillips had ever told anybody that. And Chuck Colson thought he knew what was important in life. He'd seen all the big things. And Tom Phillips had him over to his house another night because he'd figured out what was going on in Chuck's heart. He didn't know what was big and what life was really about. And he'd always been on top. And so he brought Stan Smith. Anybody know who Stan Smith was in the tennis world? I see a few hands. There's gray in my beard and maybe yours if you have one. Uh, uh, Stan Smith uh, got to number two or number three in men's tennis several times. Never made it to the top. Tom Phillips had Chuck Colson and Stan Smith over to his house, played tennis, and they sat down afterwards for some lemonade and who knows what else. And, uh, and he uh, asked Stan the question, how do you do it? How do you deal with never being number one? And Stan Smith gave his testimony that he didn't have to be number one because he was in the household of Jesus. And I may be wrong, it was either that night or soon after that Chuck was the last one to leave and he was sitting in Tom Phillips' driveway in his car and it started raining. And he sat there and just found himself sobbing at the wheel because he realized he'd grasped after so many titles and honors, uh, but he'd missed the pearl of great price and now he'd found it. And Colson went to prison and at a meeting at Harvard a few years later after he'd gotten out, uh, somebody yelled out in the middle of the crowd, uh, Why'd you lie for Nixon? And a friend of mine who was there said, Chuck looked down and was very quiet for a minute. And, uh, and Colson just said, because he was my friend. And all the anger went out of the room. Because people were thinking, what would it be like to have a friend like that? What, what makes people a friend like that? And for decades, people didn't believe that Chuck's conversion was real. And yet, if you know anything about prison fellowship, which he started after his time in federal prison, uh, there are tens of thousands of thousands of thousands of prisoners all around the world that were led to Christ. Because Chuck laid hold of the pearl of great price. And he kept it in the forefront of his mind. Jesus says of the Jewish people, his sheep hear his voice and I know them and they follow me. And in John ten sixteen, a little later, he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one Shepherds, most interpreters think he's saying the Gentiles too. Cheap of another fold that will all be of one fold because there's one new household. Thirdly, Jesus' ministry is first to the household of Israel, but Jesus' light that shines first in a house must soon shine to outsiders too. And Jesus stirs such hostility because his new household with its stores of both old and new Matthew 13, 15, 1, 51, 52, sets new boundaries for every church and every nation and every household. Uh, the household of Jesus, uh, though I'm glad I'm in the PCA and I'm an ordained pastor in the PCA and I, I honor our traditions, there's so much good in them, uh, but the household of Jesus is a whole lot bigger than that. And may I never forget it. And may you never forget it. Matthew 13, 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. It's like a, the, the Greek word has in it, uh, uh, like a, a sane net, a, a net that filters everything out. It's like in a loop and it's dragged across and it catches everything. It doesn't have a lure that just goes for one kind of fish, but all the different kinds of fish and whatever else gets drug in. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous. By the way, did you notice Jesus said in both parables, the angels come? I may be wrong on this when you get to heaven, you can ask. But I think it's because none of us are smart enough. None of us are discerning enough. And one of the points of these two parables that have the angels coming is that we're always trying to get rid of all the evil now. And different denominations call different things evil and uh, stream out, filter out uh, different things. But the reality is, I don't care how you do it, I don't care whether you practice infant baptism only, covenant baptism only, you're never going to get it right and have only believers that are pure and real in the church. Why? I don't need to answer the question. Read what we've already read uh, in the Scripture. And the line between good and evil goes down the middle of us. And until the end, when God makes the final deal, we really don't know. And so these parables, the dragnet and the good seed in the weeds, point to God's forbearance during the age of the gospel. Local churches and elders do have to make functional judgments. Church discipline is important. If you don't have church discipline, you don't have any standards. Look what happens with some of our wonderful district attorneys around the country who are ignoring all the standards. Pretty soon, there aren't any standards. It's true in the church, too. But none of us can interpret Scripture on our own. We need the church to do that, but God makes the final judgments. And he pushes every disciple or scribe towards wisdom to put the old things and the new things together. We touched on it briefly before. Let me repeat it briefly. Matthew 13, 51. Have you understood all these things they said to Jesus, the disciples? He said, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of the house who brings out of his treasure what is old and what is new. Jesus stirred a lot of hostility amongst his fellow Jews, and no little part of it was over the issues of the old and the new, his establishing a new household. Uh, It's fascinating if you read these early parables of Jesus. uh, The scribes and the Pharisees could have agreed with an awful lot of what he said. But you know what upset them so much? What he didn't say. If he had added some taglines like, Israel first, or this only applies uh, to the sons and daughters of Abraham, and if he wouldn't have said some stuff like uh, Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. I mean, that stuff really rattled their cages because it said he was rearranging the boundaries. And then we have verses 53 and following. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there and coming to his hometown. He taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished. And they said, where did this man get this wisdom in these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And aren't his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, and are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. A couple of weeks ago we read in Matthew 12 where his mother and his brothers had come and he stretched out his hands towards the disciples and said, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Do You see what Jesus was doing and why they were so upset with him? He was saying this new household that I'm forming is every bit as important in my family household as my mother and maybe more important. If, my mother won't do the will of God. I'll still love her. I'll still take care of her or send somebody to take care of her. But ultimately what counts is doing the will of God, hearing the word of the kingdom and understanding it and beginning to follow along. And everywhere he goes, he's shaking everything up. And throughout the parables, we see that Christ Jesus himself is the word, the seed, the thing of value to be received by and judged by him and welcomed by him and adopted into the new household. That's the incredible grace of the gospel. We've been forgiven, accepted, placed in his new family, which supersedes the Jewish nation. And that's why we run into such trouble when we get national churches. You know, a lot of people in Western culture are trying to beat up on America or beat up on Britain, and we deserve it sometimes. But we've probably done a better job of separating church and state than most people. Pray for the... Eastern Orthodox churches, right now. It's tough when there's a Russian Orthodox church and a Ukrainian Orthodox church. How do they understand what it means to be one household? And I'm not about to get into trying to deal with the theology of all of that this morning. I'm just saying it's really tough. And we better be using Jesus' grid and not earthly grids as we think about those kinds of things. And it's fascinating that these parables, Jesus tells us we got to wait. Evil's here to stay, and he's willing to let it go for a while. These parables in 1 Peter, the letter, teach forbearance, that the line between good and evil goes down through the middle of us. Uh, I'm rereading again uh, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, (sighs) Amazing how insightful into Scripture and life Tolkien was when I came uh, to Tolkien's words to Frodo about Gollum. Smeagol, if you know the story, if you don't ask somebody. Raise your hand if you know Lord of the Rings. If you've got questions, talk to one of those people afterwards. <laughs> but, I mean, you want to wipe Smeagol, Gollum, off the face of the earth so many times. But Gandalf says, no, 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 we'll wait the end of the story. It's almost like Tolkien had read the New Testament, and he had, by the way. And, and that's what we have to do. We have, we have to live that kind of way. Maybe some of you have a golem in your household. Maybe you're like I am maybe one day a month and you're wise enough to see that you can be golem. So whether it's your own heart or A wayward loved one or a Corrie Ten Boom situation when years after the Holocaust she was speaking about Jesus and a man came up to her and she realized quickly he was one of the prison guards in the Holocaust camp where her sister Betsy died and where she and Betsy were for such a long period of time and he told her I too know Jesus and he reached out his hand and said would you forgive me And Corey said, oh, it's one of the hardest things she ever did because she needed these parables that we can't cleanse the evil and get rid of it all right away without doing a whole lot of damage. I need to be really quick with this, but uh, let me just try to say it very simply. Uh, In the parable uh, of the good seed and the weeds, uh, the servants ask the master uh, when they see the weeds, uh, should we just rip it out, tear out the weeds? And a lot of us think, yeah, that'd be good. Let's get them all out of there right now. Get rid of all the evil stuff around us. But Jesus uh, says a very interesting thing, and the ESV and the NIV say, uh, let them remain. ES, uh, the uh, New American Standard, I think, says uh, allow uh, the Greek verb is ephiemi, and it's a really interesting word in Greek. Uh, it's two major ideas tied into all at, all at once. One is uh, to allow, to, to let, uh, to, to remain. Um, and if you go into the, the Latin, uh, it has all kinds of ideas like demit and omit and emit and admit and permit and remit. And interestingly, when it's applied to debts and trespasses and sins, for instance, it comes out in the King James Version as forgive. Which really makes sense. Because if you're going to let the evil stand for a while, if you're going to allow them to be for a while, there for a while, you're being forbearing to them. You're standing in a posture of forgiveness, and only God at the end knows who the real evil are. And he's the only one who can really deal with that. And I love what one student of the parable writes. He says, you know, when this parable, let the weeds remain, was read in the early church, say on the Lord's Day, it would have rung a large bell in the congregation's mind. They had just prayed a prayer or shortly would. We prayed it earlier this morning as Vic led us. Uh, Ophes, which is another form of the verb aphiomē, our debts, look over our debts, allow our debts, because they are there, to somehow fit into our being accepted by you. By letting it be, that is forgiveness, that is suffering, and even permission rolled into one. And sometimes with our own waywardness, our wayward ones, we We have for a time to let them go, hoping that our forgiving, our welcoming, is going to move them forward. And just as the leaven is in the dough from the dough's creation, so God's ephemi, his letting, his allowing, his letting our evil hurt him, ultimately in Christ, is part of God as Emmanuel, God being with us. The kingdom isn't new, is it? Eve sins, and God, in effect, says, uh, instead of killing her, leave her, let her grow, cover her, forgive her, Genesis 3.15. God is Emmanuel in the days before Jesus. He's with Noah and those he welcomed into the ark. Anybody was welcome to come on the ark. He's there with Moses as Moses disobeyed and struck the rock. God is Emmanuel with Elijah when he foolishly cries, I, only I am left. I'm the only faithful prophet left. And God gently reminded him there were plenty more. And he's there with David, whose family is deeply disciplined because of his sin. But because God is Emmanuel, David's kingdom still abides. And David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Can you take both the old and the new and begin to see how they have to fit together in the parables? We'll look at a bunch more in the coming month or so out of some of the other Gospels. But brothers and sisters, these are not some strange thing. They are a way of telling you the Gospel and a way of telling me the Gospel and of telling us to lean on the wisdom of God who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, get my feeble words out of the way and put yours through to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.